You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Welcome to all of our participants after a much-needed break. We are back together again for our commentary on our lectionary for the Sunday of the ointment-bearing women. And, uh, you know, Father, in these weeks after following Pascha, we very much kind of relive and, uh, and it says are baptized into more and more this mystery of the resurrection. It's not something that is good for Jesus. As I oftentimes say, there's no, no great mystery that God rose from the dead, okay? <laughs> the source of life cannot be contained by death. But the great mystery that is revealed in the resurrection and is now revealed week after week for us in this season is our incorporation into this, into this reality. And in these weeks following the Feast of the Resurrection, following Pascha, uh, we have something of a, of a kind of a synaxis, a coming together of all of those who rejoice at the Feast. And, uh, and here, as we did last Sunday with St. Thomas, and now this Sunday with the ointment bearing women, Joseph and Nicodemus and so forth, all of those coming together in our liturgical celebration to celebrate with us. We're going to be looking this week at Mark chapter 15. So if the participants want to write this down, Mark chapter 15, verse 43 through chapter 16, verse 8. That's Mark 15, 43 through 16, 8. And then uh, the epistle that, that is given to us is from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts 6, 1 through 7. So let's jump right here into the gospel account for this feast, uh, the Sunday of the ointment-bearing women. Father Sebastian, uh, got your Bible out there? There we go. Everybody get your Bibles out. Time for a little Bible study. Okay. At that time, there came Joseph, the one from Arimathea, counselor of high rank, who was himself looking for the kingdom of God. And he went in boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. But Pilate wondered whether he had expired so soon, and sending for the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was, he granted the body to Joseph. And he bought, he bought a linen cloth and took him down and wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone to the entrance of the tomb. But Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jose, were looking on and saw where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices in order to go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had just risen. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away from the tomb for us? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Now it was very large. And on entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, clothed in a white robe, and they were amazed. 
And he said to them, do not be terrified. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he goes before you into Galilee, where you shall see him as he told you. And they left and fled from the tomb, for trembling and fear had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Father, before we jump into the text, I want to remind our participants of the resources available through the Institute of Catholic Culture. I have a particular talk that I did on the appearances of the resurrected Christ. It's in our uh, Institute of Catholic Culture library. If you go to instituteofcatholicculture.org, um, you have to be a member, but that means just signing up with your email and so forth. It's all free of charge. And then my talk, Appearances of the Resurrected Lord, where I kind of go through where, you know, where Jesus went, when he appeared and all of that. It's kind of a, almost somebody called it a travel log one time, not necessarily the most cutting edge or exciting talk, but it kind of helps us get a sense of what happened in those days following all the way up to the ascension. But here, help us, Father, um, as we're looking at this text in Mark chapter 15, as we always do, we want to get the context, uh, especially who are these women that are there? Who are the particular personalities that are there so that we can kind of stand in the story? Sure. So the, um, first of all, obviously, there's these, we hear about Joseph Arimathea, and if we look at John's gospel, and Nicodemus, the, so there's, there's other individuals in the stories you mentioned and all being commemorated for the Sunday. Uh, but these women, these women disciples of the Lord, or the myrrh-bearing women, or the ointment-bearing women, as they're called, we hear about them here, but this is not the first time we heard about these women. They're not a surprise in the story if we've been reading along carefully in the gospel. All of the gospels refer to them being present at the tomb and witnessing the empty tomb. But Luke's gospel tells us a little bit of information about them earlier. If we go back to Luke's gospel in chapter 8, <clears throat> just turn there for a second. Back in Luke chapter 8, it says, and this is back in the, you know, earlier in Jesus's ministry in Galilee, it says, uh, this is chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterwards, he went on through the cities and villages and preaching and bringing the good news, the kingdom of God. And, and the 12 were with him, that's obviously the men. But then it tells us there were women disciples, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Husa and uh, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So the here are three of the names of the ladies that we'll hear about if we look at the resurrection stories or the empty tomb story. We'll hear about these three names. If we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, we'll hear about Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. And then uh, it says, and many others. Right here, it tells us that these are, this is not the limit. These are the main ones we know about, but it tells us right there, and there were other women as well. And that's what we get in the, uh, in the story that we're looking at today. Um, actually, before we turn to Mark, we'll continue in Luke there. If we go to the end, we'll get to Luke's uh, version of this story. This is in Luke chapter 20, 
3, in Luke chapter 23, he says, verse 50, that Joseph of Arimathea took down the body. And then it says, verse uh, 53, then he took it down and wrapped it in linen shroud, laid him in a rock in tomb where no one had ever been laid. Verse 54, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. Verse 55, here's these women. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath. They rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, this is the next chapter, at the early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices. So Luke tells us, that they had come from Galilee, they were following him back in his Galilean ministry, and along with these disciples that we've been talking about as they went to Jerusalem, as we talked about this before Pascha, we hear, as we'd expect, that these women disciples also went along, and then they're mentioned in verse 10 of this chapter 24. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James, Okay, and that's our linkage over to what we were just looking at in Mark. So we hear about Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joses. So if you look at all of them together, this is the same Mary. And then there's also Susanna and Joanna. So those are the four we can identify very easily. Mary of Magdala, Mary, the mother of James and Joses, Susanna, Joanna. But all of these stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all imply that there are other women at the tomb with them. So it's not limited to these four that we can actually identify their names. And really, that's, it doesn't really matter how many there were. Uh, the, the tradition, the icon, uh, the icon of this uh, feast gives us eight of them, including Mary uh, and Martha from Bethany, the brothers of Lazarus. But what really matters is not so much how many there were or what are their names or if we can identify who was happened to be there that you know that actual event but rather what they did they witnessed the empty tomb and then they witnessed the risen lord and they went out and did something about it. Father, that, that um, just just two points based on that. I want to talk about this this role, this place of witnessing the, the empty tomb. I mean, we have the church fathers love to point out that the whole of creation, the whole of creation witnesses to the resurrection by the fact of the empty tomb. The tomb is representing the earth, and therefore all of creation witnesses to this empty tomb. Of course, we have Mary Magdalene as this icon of the apostle to the apostles. Uh, it's so beautiful that all of these women become witnesses to what they have seen. And this is a theme that is now carried through, whether the reading of the Gospel of St. Thomas, or now the, um, on this Sunday now, this beautiful, this beautiful Gospel of the, the women. And, um, and all, all of this is given to us, I said at the beginning, as this way of incorporation that we have now become also witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. We hear throughout the year um, the, this, rep, this almost like it's just the, the church is just saying to us over and over again um, that in the, in the Orthros gospel, the gospel of the resurrection, this is the reality that we now live. 
we live it in the same way that these women have, have lived it through the holy mysteries of the church. We come to encounter Christ and come to know him. We come to see the empty tomb and the, re the realization of the resurrection of Christ. And then we become like Mary Magdalene, an apostle, in a sense, an apostle to the apostle or, or, or ones who are sent out into the world, right? We, we become uh, missionaries for Christ who go out and do what they did, announce the resurrection to the world. Um, and I, there's another aspect here that I'm so glad you brought us back to this text of Luke chapter 8 and this identification of the women and what they were doing for Christ and the apostles. It says that they provided for them out of their own means. It's a big reminder to us <clears throat> that while we preach the gospel freely, um, nevertheless, the church itself as, a, as kind of a, a missionary movement must have some fundamental support. Uh, the work of Christ goes out into the world and has need, uh, needs that sustain it, if you will, in the world. And not just financially. Yes, this is true about these women. I think they're a great example to all of us that we are to bring our full selves to the work of, of Christ, uh, our time, our talent, and our treasure. These women gave up everything, and they provided for uh, for the Lord and for the apostles out of their own means to ensure that the work of Christ continued. And I think you and I, uh, all of us participants, Bible study is a big wake up call to us to say, where are we? Are we coming? Are, look, I got my wallet here, uh, you know, and I, what am I doing with it? It's part of my life. And I, I say that as a, as a sustain as a member of Christ, uh, of the people of God member of the laity. You know, you and I didn't stop to be members of the people of God when we became priests. We also have a duty to support the church out of our own means, to support the work of Christ out of our own means in a serious way. And, and, then, and then to do what these women have done and take seriously this revelation that has been given to us to go out and to Preach the good news of Christ, that he is risen from the dead. I love these weeks following Pascha because I like, same as Christmas, I like to do something which is um, maybe a little bit of a trick or whatever. But I go into stores, you know, happy Easter, I say to people, because this is what, you know, because, they, you know, Christ is risen or, you know, blessed Pascha, they won't know what I'm talking about. But happy Easter, most of the time people will say happy Easter, at least for the first week or two. And, um, and once they agree, happy Easter, then I say Christ is risen. So they've already agreed to the fact that we're already in agreement. And now I can just place the reality, <laughs> truth of what has happened. You know, we don't have bunnies going around laying eggs. Jesus is risen from the dead. And they can come to at least some sort of an agreement about that. Uh, the same with, with, uh, with the nativity of Christ. Father, this whole, I could say, incarnational gospel, that the resurrection of Christ is not just for Jesus, or I should say it is for Jesus and all of us who have been now baptized into him and made one with him, um, that we are now given this gift of witnessing in our life the truth that Christ is, is risen from the dead. I am risen with him, and now I live the resurrected life. This incarnational gospel is lived out in this in the epistles which are read during this time of year during uh, when we read the acts of the apostles and i encourage our participants to go and read acts of the apostles at the time of year not just in the liturgy but at home be reading this this life of the early church upon which we model our life and we participate this is our this is the beginning in a sense of our family story 
in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, the epistle which is given to us today, we get this incarnational gospel, if you will, the, the continuation of what was begun there on that day of the resurrection with the witness of the apostles. And I just want to just look at this very quickly uh, with you and uh, allow just a little bit of a, of a back and forth here because I think it helps us understand what happened in those days and then also our role in the church. It says in Acts chapter 6, starting with verse 1, In those days, as the number of disciples increased, there arose a complaint among the Greeks against the Hebrews, in that their widows were being neglected in the daily service. There's, a, there's a, a, I think, a little lesson for our communities here. This division that oftentimes is seen in our communities is nothing new to the church. It's a struggle. It's a struggle founded in human nature. It's something Jesus has come to resolve, but nevertheless, the church has to work that out. And it works it out in this way that, and so the 12 summoned the many disciples and said, it is not good that we give up the word of God and serve at tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom that we could put to this service while we devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the, the, this is uh, traditionally understood as the origin of the diaconate, that the apostles, and then by extension, those ordained as priests in the church have this ministry of preaching the good news. But in order to do that, we, we need help. And I, to go back to this division between the Greeks and the Hebrews, notice what the apostles do. They don't condemn one group or the other. They ask others to help make sure that those who were neglected are served. They're very positive, a very positive apostolic evangelical work taking place in which there is a need within the community. And rather than blaming various groups, they ask others to participate in this ministry of service. And it's, it's I think, an important reminder to, our, to the members of our community that Rather than, you know, when, when we see that there's weaknesses or weak parts of our community, our community's organic reality with different parts, that we ask others to participate in the ministry that we're doing. If we're exhausted in our ministry, then incorporate others into it to help take pieces of that to be able to function properly within the body of Christ. The, the text goes on. And the plan was pleasing to the whole crowd, and they chose... Uh, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and, and Prochorus, and, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Par Parmenas, and Nicholas, a recent convert from Antioch. So we know that already the faith has spread north, uh, even into Syria, or at least some of the proselytes coming from Antioch and from the surrounding regions that were coming to Jerusalem received the faith, and we're going to probably take it back there. Um, these they presented to the apostles who then prayed and laid hands upon them. So we have this ordination, this apostolic ordination taking place. And God's word was growing, and the number of the disciples increased considerably in Jerusalem, and many of the priests accepted the faith. Father, I just want to come back to you here at the end and help us understand what it looked like there in, the, in Jerusalem in the early church. We have a little indication here that we have, I, I don't know, I, I, coming to this text, I oftentimes feel, I have a sense that in Jerusalem in those early days, there were the apostles in the upper room and a few Christians. That's the apostolic church. It's like a few people 
but that's not really indicated here when it's who are these priests who accepted the faith is is that like the new christian you know presbyters <laughs> all right so the uh, the story shows us that the church inherits a problem as the church is growing rapidly in Jerusalem, inherits a problem that was already there present among the Jews in Jerusalem. And that is the divisions within among the Jews. There were Aramaic-speaking Jews of Judea. Hebrew was long since gone as a spoken language, but there re since Aramaic and Hebrew are sister languages, they're referred to here as the Hebrews. These are Jewish Christians who are, who are culturally, linguistically, local Semitic peoples. And they're descendants of the Jews that have been there for a long time, of course. But they're, because of the various attacks on Jerusalem that we know about from the Old Testament in the previous centuries, even going back as far as the Assyrian attack, and then the attack by the Babylonians, and then the Greeks, and then eventually the Romans roll into town. There are multiple waves of dispersions of Jews who are going out into the Gentile world. And when they come back to Jerusalem, either a generation or two later, they, they come back speaking Greek, not Aramaic. Aramaic's not going to be spoken in, you know, in Rome or Alexandria or something. Greek was the common language of the, of the ancient Greco-Roman Empire. Even the Romans used it. So when they come back, they speak Greek and they act like Greeks. They talk like Greeks. They eat like Greeks. They smell like Greeks. They're, they're very different than the local Jewish community. Although genetically they're identical, they're their background, their cultural background of at least a few generations is very different. And so there are two different groups of, of Jews in Jerusalem this time. There are the locals who speak Aramaic, have been living there for generation upon generation, generation, and see themselves as the authentic Jews. And then there are those who have returned or the grandchildren of the diaspora have come back and they speak Aramaic. They even have Greek-speaking synagogues in Jerusalem, as we hear about uh, in this chapter. And so the division that was there in Jerusalem between these two groups is inherited then by the early church here. When all of these Jews of Jerusalem are, are being baptized and coming in, tragically, they bring in with them their division that they have there before they were even Christian. And then the apostles then have to deal with this problem. These, the, 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 the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians feel as if they're widows and they're poor are not really getting a fair deal here because those who are in charge currently of the distribution of bread and are of a dominant nature in the city are not maybe giving the bread that they should be to the there's a there's obviously a, a class war here and i think you you said very appropriately boy we can see even this in our own communities things haven't changed much so you know you and i didn't really prepare ourselves to talk about this question so if you don't want to go down this road that's fine but i 
I um I uh, want to get a sense for our audience of what Jerusalem looks like in those days. Both here in the very early days where we, we hear things like 3,000 people converted, 3,000 men converted, right? And then, and then now it says in this text, many of the priests also accepted the faith. Am I reading it right to, to think that Jerusalem undergoes a, a real transformation of faith following the resurrection? That there is a, not just a kind of a, a oh, there's a, that little sect of Christians that are over there in the upper room, but now it seems as though reading this, that uh, a, a good number, if not a majority of Jews in Jerusalem convert to Christ. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make. A lot of times people today look at Jerusalem. They may have gone on a pilgrimage or they've seen, you know, the news of various qualities uh, on TV and, and, and think somehow the modern state of Israel, the modern Israeli state, is somehow the same thing they're seeing back here. Obviously, you know, most people, modern people are just completely uh, ignorant of history typically. Uh, and that's a, a great danger, of course. So, um, but no, you, this is a very important point you're making. Jerusalem is being transformed overnight. The Jews are converting in droves. You have, as you mentioned, the conversion of 3,000 Jews in the city of Jerusalem at Pentecost, right? baptized into Christ. And that's mentioned back in chapter 2, verse 41. But then in chapter 4, Luke tells us, this is in chapter 4, verse 4, that the number of the disciples grew to four, uh, sorry, to 5,000. So you can see this massive growth. We know about the resurrection and we're thinking 12. And Luke tells us back in chapter 1 of Acts that the number of disciples was already 120, right? 10 times 12. And then he tells us about 3,000, and now 5,000. And then he tells us something very important that you mentioned, that although the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees were opposing the apostles as an organization, the council of elders, even the priests, the Levitical priests in the temple were converting. And that's what's mentioned there in chapter 6, verse 7. And so the Jews are converting in droves. And... And, of course, this is what leads to the massive persecution of this movement by those who were in power, because they saw very quickly they were losing control of the mass of Jews in the city who were all accepting Jesus as the Messiah. You know, I, I'm glad you brought us here to, to Acts chapter 2. Of course, we're, as I said, we're reading over all of this now in our lectionary cycle. Um, to bring us back to these women, the women disciples of the Lord who were witnesses of the empty tomb. And isn't that the content of the apostolic preaching? This one who you crucified, he rose from the dead. He is alive. And therefore, we have the possibility of eternal life. You know, oftentimes we get, we get so caught up in our books and books and books of theology that that if you ask a person, what is the good news of Jesus Christ? I oftentimes hear the, uh, 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 the, the message is very simple, that God is the, is the source of all life. He is eternal life and he is love. 
and he's come to share his life with us. Uh, and now we are witnesses of his love, that overflowing love, which is, which is uh, the breadth and the depth of which is revealed to us on the cross uh, and given to us in the resurrected life. We are now recipients of that and we are witnesses of that. Um, and, uh, and I think oftentimes, you know, we see our communities sometimes um, today, sadly, shrinking and Christians are fleeing the Middle East. And it just looks like almost and maybe in some ways Christianity is a dying religion. is isn't anything dying about Christianity. It's just a matter of that, that God has given into our hands this gift of witness. That the spreading of the good news, as, as we hear in Jerusalem there, uh, in those early days, the spreading of the good news is given to the ones who are witnesses, as you and I are. And to the extent that they go out there and they witness, uh, uh, the faith spreads. And even, even the Jews convert, <laughs> okay? Something which is, I think, uh, maybe, uh, well today is considered to be forbidden. You don't do that. You know, we make converts out of, out of people. What? This is the, the, the good news of Jesus Christ. That he's come to share his life with us. So we're given this witness in the early church. And, and I think it's something for us to all, for us to meditate upon these women who provided out of their own means and then became the source of the good news in the sense that they were the witnesses that went out even to the apostles and said, this is what we saw. And we have to be willing to do that, to go out into our grocery stores and our workplaces and our families and be willing to say, Christ is risen. Uh, and I've, and I've, seen, I've seen, I'm a witness of this truth. And I'm a witness of the love which he has given us in our communities, which are a, 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 a community bound by the love so that others can look and see, say, look at how the Christians love one another. It's a love which no one else has. And then again, once again, people will see the value of coming to Christ, that they might receive the one thing that they desire so deeply, and that is a possibility of eternal life. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.